Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with my illustrious co-host, Matt Scott. And it is uh, that time of year. It's holiday season, and Matt just brought over a giant box of cookies that I, I Laura- did, I did that, not make them. <laughs> that Laura made. And we also uh, gave a box of cookies to our host for the day, uh, Dave Harriton. He is CEO and founder of American Expedition Vehicles, a longtime friend. We have traveled extensively together, and it has been so fun, Dave, to watch your journey of success. And thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast. Today. I'm just glad that he's hosting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So, uh, I don't know if I signed up for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I've, I've wanted to do this for a while. I just schedule has never worked out and today it did. Yeah. We've talked about it a couple of times and this is, this is the chance, which is great. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. There's a lot that we can talk about, and we're going to kind of let this one just take place as it does. We're not going to be too concerned around time because I really want to make sure that we cover some of these topics uh, completely because you, you bring so much insight, I think, to the overland traveler and then also automotive manufacturing and modification in general. And then you have a really interesting history and a personal story that I think a lot of people don't know that I think would be fun to talk about. So as I remember, you started off in competitive kayaking and then that dovetailed into you going to engineering school. And there were some other interesting things that happened at that point. So talk a little bit about kind of what got you interested in the outdoors and then kayaking. Yeah. Well, and they, they were kind of parallel. I was really involved with kayaking when I was younger um, in college. That was something that I didn't know it at the time, but it really prepared me mm. um, in terms of like knowing how to make molds and learning some processes that I still use to this day, kind of learning about some industry stuff and even dealing with some contracts then. I mean, when I was 20 23, I um, started working and, and I developed the part, a protective skid plate, you could call it for a kayak that had come out. Interesting. And in that part, I ended up stock, starting to talk to the company and the owner became pretty fast friends. I'd picked up some sponsorship from them, started making some money uh, yeah. selling these things. Cause he said, Hey, if you may, if you make those things, we'll sell them. And so I did that, that kind of parlayed itself into me helping him design some kayaks and doing some stuff that's still kind of the norm today wow. um, on the whitewater scene. That also at the same time gave me enough money. I had this Wrangler. It, was, it wasn't my Wrangler. It was actually my dad's Wrangler. And he sent me off to college with it. I decided that that thing was too small and it was too rough and it had some drive shaft issues. So I was mm. like, you know what? I could fix that by stretching it. And keep in mind, I had never changed my own oil at that time. Sure. I had never done anything with a car, but I was like, how hard could it be? Sure. Yeah. I went to Ace Hardware. I bought a $40 socket set. I came home. I took my dad's Jeep apart. Never asked him. And, uh, <laughs> that, that's the best part. <laughs> yeah. I completely took it apart. Yeah. And then- um, yeah, Better off asking for forgiveness. I had been like that since I was a little kid. Sure. But, uh, you know, they sent me off to college with AAA, which had I'd noticed had four free toes. And I had become friends with- a. Uh, a guy who was a welder and he's like, yeah, I'll do it for you for 500 bucks. 
And um, so I figured, okay. So I took it apart. I had AAA come and tow the chassis over to a shop. And then <laughs> we'd stretched in and towed it back. And I put the short body on the long frame and towed it back and towed it back. And it took me like a year. Sure. And I did the hard top. You know, I had the fiberglass skills and I knew how to do it. And it took me like a year to put it together. Eventually to graduate business school, I had to do a business plan. So I, people seem to like my Jeep. Oh, and by the way, I took it home. Once I got it done, I took it back for Christmas, back to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and your dad still didn't know? My parents didn't even notice. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> just, they didn't even notice. <laughs> what happened to the Jeep? I mean, but that's, was, but that's why, good. Why is yeah. the Jeep so much more practical? <laughs> yeah. No, but that says a lot notice. that they didn't notice. Right. Made yeah. it look factory. Oh, I even had the stickers on it. And now if I remember, I think you won an award for that, didn't you? Well, so I won the business plan competition at the University of Montana, which is still going on to this day. But today, if you win, you get like 40 grand. Then you got a nice pat on the back. Sure. And and then I got to go present it to other schools and we did really well. So they took like the top five people in the, at the University of Montana and put them all on my business plan. We, we flew around and presented at different schools and we were one of the few undergrads doing it. And we actually had a lot of offers for venture capital like that on the spot on, at several schools. Wow. And investments. And I didn't take any of it. I, it just didn't seem, I don't know, it just didn't seem right. Mm. And it didn't seem real. And I was like, what, what, what are these people doing? And what do they want in return? Yeah. What yeah. do they want? And yeah. I, I was like, no, it just didn't make enough sense. So, you know, I was, wasn't that sophisticated. Yeah. To know in, in hindsight, I mean, that could have been a good thing. It could have been a bad thing, but yeah, you don't know. That's the challenge with hindsight is it could have gone either way. Right. Yeah. And so I, I tend to keep things really simple. So what I knew in my brain is, okay, you, you know, you go to the bank, you get a loan to start a business. This is all I know. My perception, right? So I did that. I took the business plan. I handed it into a bank and I got a $35,000 loan. And that's how I started AEV in 1997. And if I remember too, you, you started off in a really small shop and you were living in the shop at the yeah. same time. Yeah. The first one did didn't have any windows and uh, I was working all kinds of crazy hours. Yeah. And uh, you've always worked. I guess that's always hours. kind of a good thing <laughs> if you're working crazy hours. Yeah. No except, windows. Yeah. Except you didn't know, like sometimes my, I'd look at my clock and it'd say like two 30 and I literally didn't know if that was in the morning or the afternoon <laughs> until I walked out and opened the door. And some days <laughs> sunny and yeah, some yeah. be really calm and peaceful and dark out. Amazing. But yeah, that went on for years. And then, uh, and then I moved to a different shop and that was even a crazier story because that one had um, big fluorescent lights that didn't turn off. And I was like sleeping up on the loft under these fluorescent white lights all night, you know, no hot water. Sure. Right? And uh, no kitchen. Now, was that the shop that I first saw? Yeah. Your stuff. Okay. Yeah. And cool. so I lived in that and it took me, it was a pretty big shop. It was a big shop, but it was like, you know, I, I didn't realize it till now, but these like, you know, somebody told me, he's like, that's how, that's how they torture people now is they don't turn the lights off. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, and here I am just yeah. happy as could be at the time. Yeah. Yeah. My two dogs and, uh, well, you worked yourself enough during the day that you, when you finally hit the pillow, you probably were exhausted. Yeah. You know, I've always been that kind of guy. I just, I work, I get up early and I work late. Hindsight, I wouldn't call myself a workaholic, but now, like now in life, I kind of look back and I'm like, holy cow, hey, you know, that's, <laughs> you're kind of a workaholic. And it's, it's difficult. I, I think for both of us, we love what we do and we're inspired by the people that we work with and the things that we get to interact with. And it's so easy to just go deeper down the rabbit hole. Totally. And, and it's for me, you know, it was something I would be doing. I mean, I would be making something with my hands, whether I was off from work then, you know, I'd still be up doing something. And that was something, it didn't matter to me that I wasn't making money, you know, was barely surviving in a way, yeah. you know, but that didn't even register with me. Sure. I just wanted to make cool, something cool. Yeah. And I knew what I wanted to do. The time and the work really, it didn't really phase me at all. I remember, I think it was 2005 SEMA, I think. Was that when you brought the Iceland trucks? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So we're all in this parking lot and I'm, I've got like the, the one overland vehicle and I have a roof tent and everybody like, nobody knows what this thing is. Whoa, dude. Like, look at that. You have a Trying tent, you have a tent on Africa. <laughs> you have a tent on top of your car. So I've like, I've got my Tacoma there and I'm putting the stickers on my Tacoma. Cause it at last minute I'm there getting my truck ready. Sounds like SEMA. Yeah. And here comes Dave in with a couple flatbeds and he's pulling these trucks off with these. Dave, I think they had 40 inch tires on them or larger. One of them, I think was a JK, like one of the, the first. Commander? Yeah. There was a commander and a TJ. Oh, uh, TJ. Like, Got I it. Okay. Commander. I like the idea. Yeah, it was like the, the first Highline TJ. You guys were putting on the snorkel and stickers and stuff in the parking lot. And I just, I just remembered saying to myself is like, we're all dealing with the same oh, thing man. because what, when I looked at what you guys were doing, it looked like another universe to me, another, like a whole nother level of execution. But then to see you guys putting the stickers on, it kind of made me feel a little like, oh, like we're all in it together. We're all just like up until midnight. I showed up at SEMA one time when we did the, in 2003, we did the Brute and we didn't get that car because it was like one of the very first Rubicons, like first five Rubicons off the line. And uh, they got it to us really late and like literally put that car together in like six days. And it was, <laughs> it was just crazy. And I remember we were up for five days straight is what it was. And uh, Dave Yegi, yeah, you know, it still works totally. for me today. He, he would take, he was an engineer at Jeep and he would take his vacation and come help me get ready for SEMA. So he was up for five days and I didn't realize that you would start to hallucinate about day three. <laughs> sure. I remember making the mold for the hard top. Like in my head, I just remember kind of seeing my hands in front of me. I could see out the door through the fan. And I just remember going like light, dark, light, dark, like over a period of three days when I made the mold and the first top. And then I had, you know, I got it painted. I mean, we talk about the paint being wet as some of the SEMA cars. This one, literally I showed up at SEMA in clothes. I had been wearing for five days <laughs> with a respirator mark with red paint on my face. I mean, that was the closest we've ever had. And we were bolting parts on on there. And I remember uh, Dave and I were too busy or we were too tired to drive. So we let my brother drive and he came out of a four cylinder TJ. And so he's driving with a, you know, 28 foot truck or a 28 foot trailer with the, this boot on it and this brand new Ram that Dave had brought out. He was allowed to drive Ram. So it was like a prototype with a big Cummins engine in it at the time. It, you know, it was, it was when they stepped up to all these newer motors. And um, I just remember waking up and looking over <laughs> Jordan's towing along at a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> You know, because his, his, uh, sure. way he drives is just put the foot to the floor. For yeah, like, TJ, right? Solve every miles. problem with, yeah, wide open throttle. Well, he didn't yeah. even notice, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you know, he's just used to driving a four cylinder TJ with 35s. You just put your foot to the floor and, you know, you can't, you can't speed, right? And he'd never towed. I just remember waking up, like, you gotta slow down. <laughs> yeah. And then you right know, back asleep. Middle of the night. Now, now, is it by chance that is that same four cylinder TJ the one that turned into the brute that's out in the <laughs> parking lot? Outside, yeah. yeah. yeah it's small world. For me, I remember, I remember going into SEMA and seeing those trucks there, seeing the commander and, and seeing the TJ and they had the, the Panasonic Toughbook laptops mounted oh, in the yeah. center dash. And, and they were the, like the livery was like made over the top about this expedition and everything. And I just, I mean, I was taken aback, like completely blown away by, cause it's what I was aspiring to was that kind of level of adventure and execution and everything else like that. And I think it was shortly thereafter that we started to get to know each other. And and then I did the big trip up to Tuck Yuck Tuck in that same Tacoma and we stopped by in Montana and you guys gave us a tour yeah, and yeah. we got to go out to dinner that night and you drove the same commander and all that. So it was, uh, it was really neat to see that evolution to where now you have an R and D facility in Montana 
and you have a huge manufacturing facility outside of Detroit that I've been to. It's just really impressive to see how far you guys have come. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind, you know, when, when that happened, I mean, I'd already been doing it for nine years. Yeah. It is a crazy, I think back to, you know, the very first phone call I made when I started AV, like I got my loan. I was like, okay, I bought a Jeep and you know, the modify sold mine. I had to sell mine to get a new TJ at the time. The very first phone call I made was to Chris Wood. You know, sure. He was the West Coast sales manager for ARB. And here 25 years later, you know, Chris has worked for me for over a decade now. He has, yeah. Dave Yeagy, same thing. You know, I met him the first year and my brother's been with me and a couple other guys have been there since, you know, nearly day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty funny that, you know, all these people have kind of devoted their life to my Making ideas. Making this all happen. Yeah, so it's, it's been it's been humbling and pretty amazing. Especially, yeah, I go back east and I look at the building and the facilities. You know, there's two buildings. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've been to there's both. There's two but, now. Yeah, we've had two buildings. So it's Yeah, two, you had the original building, which I, you were, I you were in too, the, yeah. you saw the original building when we came through on Expedition 7. And then recently I borrowed one of your prospectors and I went to the new building and that was amazing. Oh yeah, I, I mean, you go in there and it's got coffee bar and it's, you know, it's all modern and beautiful. And I, I, even I still, to this day, I walk in there, I'm like, who, who's paying for (laughs) I mean, it's it's fantastic. You are paying for (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But I mean, I've got a great business partner, a couple great or two great business partners, and they really make sure that, um, I can do what I do you know, they take care of the rest. Yeah, right? for sure. And that's super important. Yeah. I mean, I can't say enough about the staff that I have now Yeah, and uh, the quality of people and the, how much they care, you know, not just about the product, about the customers. I mean, just in general. You know, this, Would this you say that thing. that's been pretty material for you is the fact that as you've grown, you've been able to stay in that creative space as a thought leader, as an engineer, as a creative person. Would you say that's pretty key to your success? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, the fact that, you know, it's tough, like in the early days, it was tough because I had to do all of it. Yeah. Right. And human resources and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, you went and bought the toilet paper. Yeah. Uh, you did course. it all. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, you did it all there's that point where between, you know, I always tell, like I do a lot with the business program now, you know, I try and go back, help out with the business school now between 20 and zero, you know, between one and 20 employees, it's so hard. It's so hard to keep it all on track and and keep things moving and and keep creative. And once you get past that part, then it was, it got easier because of like 20, you get a HR person. Sure. Right. And they can kind of deal with everything and it's, it's tough. I mean, I think now we are somewhere north of 130 employees. That's not just the employee, but it's like, their family, you yeah. know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of stuff. And so yeah. being able to have the staff that helps make this all happen is pretty crazy. And I was going to say like through the COVID thing, it's really brought to light how much the folks at AEV really care because yeah. like we did not have a lot of the problems I was seeing uh, elsewhere, you know, in the news and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty tightly knit and everybody really tried to help out and really. Cause you guys forward. were shut down for a period of time too. Yeah. We didn't Band-aided. know what was going on. Yeah. yeah. And then Michigan got really, yeah. you know, they were pretty serious about it. And the um, fact that you guys weathered that as well as you did. <clears throat> yeah. And like I said, I mean, everybody, like we didn't know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, you know, you have an operation that size, the bills don't stop. It's terrifying. Right. But the revenue stops. Yeah. So, you got to, you know, how you can keep all these people employed, right? How you can keep their families, you know, they, a lot of them are the main primary source of income. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of stress trying to figure out how to keep all these people going, believe it or not, to the government's credit that there was some help, there was some yeah. assistance, but early on, we just didn't know, right? Nobody yeah. knew. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was crazy. And I would say through the whole thing, I mean, I think maybe we lost two employees through the whole, you know, and, and yeah, we did have to lay people off and it, it wasn't of our choosing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I mean, it's crazy, you know, nobody knows what's going on in the future either. But I, I would say for right now, things are going well. It was almost good for us because we got to 
take a step back and finish up a bunch of stuff. And yeah, they're calling it the great pause. Now I've heard yeah. people say that. I feel like that. Even, I'm waiting for the yeah. pause to happen because <laughs> yeah, I think like in the, the overland thing, industry. the overland thing just went nuts. Yeah. There yeah. was about a month of what is going to happen, maybe a month or two. And then it was like, we came into spring and people couldn't do anything. And then they started buying like, went nuts. like on the max track side. We just like, we haven't stopped. You have to deal with all the additional supply chain challenges. You know, we're kind of like, we didn't have any really staffing problems, shipping materials, all the kind of stuff that go into it. And then just the stress of the pandemic on top of all of this and then <laughs> your business growing in a time when it's really, it's just, it's hard to grow. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very interesting because we, we hoped that it was going to be a positive outcome. So like the executive team, we all just sat down and we just decided we weren't going to pay ourselves for a while. So we could keep people employed. Like it was only a couple months and it was like we were roaring again, hiring people. So you just don't know how it's going to turn out. I can't say it was that good for us. Like we had a, we, we got stuck with it, like kind of a tough time because 18, the Wrangler changed. Sure. So that meant our, our revenues fell and our tooling bills went crazy because we had to retool everything. Sure. Every single product we make, we had to not only re-engineer, but retool massive, like the way we do things, that's a massive amount of money. And we knew that was happening. So we had planned for that, right? You got 10 sure. years to prepare, you know, the Wrangler's going to change. You got sure. 10 years to plan. So we had planned for that, but then, then the Ram changed almost the same time. Sure. Just a little change. It, just enough that we yeah. had to change. We had to redevelop, you know, the bumper and the snorkels and there were some suspension changes too. suspension. Yeah. So we had, coils. To, this was like an eight, 1919. Yeah. There were some minor changes on the suspension, but anyway, you know, that, that added in and then we got hit with COVID, you know, now we're getting hit with the chip shortage. Sure. Right. Cause like the GM Bison's a huge portion of our, what we're doing right now and they can't build vehicles. Right. Yeah. And now we're getting hit with the chip shortage, like Procals yeah. and our little tuning devices can't make those. So now we're getting hit with supply chain. So sure. it's been tough. I mean, it, you know, luck, I mean, that's kind of how entrepreneurship is. You can't, can't go out and spend everything because you never know. You, you always know? have to so, have money in the bank. Yeah. yeah. I haven't taken a paycheck in a couple of years yeah. only because, I mean, we haven't been, you know, we're back to like getting there. You know, I think next year will be good because yeah. we've, we've had a lot of time to catch up. Sure, you know? sure, sure. And, and, but our guys have been so busy, especially on the design side. We just, we just had our annual meeting and I was trying to explain the rest of the company, like our design team has been so busy in the last two years, more busy than we've ever been in the entire yeah. history of company. We've knocked out more products and yet now the rest of the company is going to get caught up. Now everybody else is going to get slammed. Sure. And so I kind of, during our Christmas meeting. <laughs> well, cause you keep expanding who you are servicing. So you started off with Wrangler only, and then you started to incorporate the Ram and then now you're incorporating GM products as well. I mean, that's pretty exciting, but it also adds a whole lot more work and yeah, complexity. And, and when you're doing the OE stuff, the level of detail has to be so much more intense, you know, on something like a Ram or Wrangler, you can be like, yeah, that's good enough. We know that's going to work. Yeah. You know, we've got two decades of experience saying that's going to be strong enough, but on the OE side, everything's got to, you got to prove everything. It's got to be crash tested and everything else. Probably. Oh, yeah. You got to get through 11 different airbag tests and you yeah. have to, you know, do all the cooling and all the simulation for cooling. And it, it ends up being so much more work. Wow. All the airbag calibrations. I mean, it's not just going through the test, but it's like doing all the development. It's just an amazing amount of work. Which actually leads me to one of the questions that I wanted to ask 
ask you is AEV aside, if, if you were to give some advice to someone who's looking for aftermarket components, what advice would you give them into helping them identify components that are well-engineered and of high quality? I think that there's oftentimes purchases are made on price or they're made on aesthetics. Fortunately, AEV stuff has always looked great. If someone's looking to buy aftermarket components, what insights can you give them into finding good quality stuff? There's so much garbage out there. What should they look for? It's kind of interesting you ask that, and I'll go back for a second, but when I started AEV, initially it was just to do long wheelbase Wranglers, which seemed like a necessity in the marketplace. Shortly after I started that, I realized I wanted to buy high quality parts for these trucks. I mean, I knew what I wanted and what just wasn't there. Mm. It was there for like Land Rovers, sure, but I couldn't find anything for Jeep. And so I realized that even if you wanted to spend the money, you couldn't. Even if you want to spend the money on really high quality stuff, and this is going back, you know, 25 years, it just wasn't an option. And so I said to myself, okay, there's a ton of cheap stuff or, you know, cheap adequate, necessarily just adequate bad. Things. It's just, yeah. you know, it's simple, right? Yeah. And there was a ton of simple, inexpensive stuff in the marketplace for Jeeps, but there wasn't anything next level. And so I said, okay, the, you know, somebody else has the inexpensive stuff handled. There's plenty of that. I'm going to go this route. And so, you know, and even today, I mean, our stuff's not inexpensive, right? It's, yeah. it, I really don't care what it costs. I just care that we can offer this product yeah. because I know somebody is looking for that. Yeah. I mean, it might not be everybody. It's obviously not everybody. So that doesn't bother me that our stuff's more expensive as long as the quality's there and the function's there. I would say, you know, if you're looking for other products, it's it's generally kind of the telltale is, is there tooling involved? Because if there's tooling involved, you know, and Matt's product is that way, right? Yeah, if there's a tooling, super expensive if tool. If there's tooling yeah. involved, means somebody, you know, spent a lot of time and money developing that tooling. And so that's one good way to tell if there's some engineering behind it. Mm. And then, you know, in general materials, good quality materials. And it seems like the finishes too are yeah. always a great tell. Like when when you look at, you can see products at on the floor at SEMA that have flash rust on them. Oh yeah. It seems like that the coatings and the finishes are also a really great tell. Finishes are, I mean, that's literally how I ended up moving the company to, to Detroit. I was trying to make stuff in Montana. I was paying for really high quality laser cutting and welding and, you know, all the stuff. And then I'd go to get it finished. And the best I could do was general you know, powder coating and powder coating will last at a maximum 18 months outside on a vehicle. Before it fades? Uh, Before you start seeing rust popping through here, there, you know, little pieces and parts. And then, you know, if you're laser cutting, you get laser scale, you know, for the average guy manufacturing parts in his garage, there's no, the finishes just aren't there. Yeah. And so that's why I ended up, I said, okay, you know, how the car company is doing this there, you know, you don't see cars rusting these days and what's involved with that, you know? So there's a lot of like the way you cut parts, whether it's laser or water, however, you do it. Um, there's different ways to do that, the pre-treatments. And so literally the only place I could do that, the only place in the world you could do that at the time was like in Japan where they're making cars or in Detroit. And so the only option for me was Detroit. Sure. And so I went to Detroit and, um, and that's where we can get the right pre-finishes and the E-coating and the powder coating and zinc coating. I mean, it depends on the part that we do, but you know, like when we offer a part for the OE, they require a 15 year corrosion warranty, 15 years. They require that from you. Yeah. Wow. I like how they only yeah. offer seven or 10. That's right. But the test is 15. Sure. Right. So we're doing all these salt spray and gravel vomiters, you know, where they go into a bin where they're throwing rocks at it, 70 miles an hour. And, you know, with hundred percent humidity, hundred degrees, you know, salt, we have to do all these tests, all these scratch tests, um, stone throw tests. So a lot of our parts you'll see, they'll be covered in certain areas because of these stones throw. And, and the cool thing about doing that on the OE side is it trickles back to our aftermarket side. Totally. Right. Yeah, all you learn coatings, all this stuff. Yeah. yeah all that stuff. 
stuff that we learn that we don't want to be a problem for us either. So whether it's the materials or the coatings, coatings are such a big problem in our industry. And I think you just had to have to know even, even our stuff, honestly, you have to keep up on it. So we offer like these textured paints that match the powder coat. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you put a front bumper out and you just go drive it in salt and ice and, you know, getting stones thrown at it forever. I mean, it's going to start, you know, after about three years, you're going to start to see some little pits. And if you don't take care of them, you got to handle it. Problem. Right. Yeah, and sure. A lot of the materials we use are um, galvanil. So they actually have a layer of galvanizing pressed into the metal, essentially, before we stamp it. Yeah, the coatings are one of those things that's... And you do see some good coatings out there from some of your bigger companies. Mostly it's the companies that have some sort of OE contract. Sure. You know, because they've, they've learned, they know. But the problem is, you know, it's like if I were to buy something aftermarket, I would almost want to buy it uncoated. And, and I see a lot of people doing that these days, which I think is kind of brilliant because I offered this uh, bumper. I end up spending all this money on them and I made money. And then... And I had like a hundred percent failure rate on the coatings and I had to, you know, warranty it. Right. So now as a little company, it almost put me out of business. Sure. Honestly, it's like selling 25 bumpers almost put me out of business. Not only did I not make that money, but now I had to like buy them back at double the cost. Sure. It was terrible. Right. And it was all because of the coating, the part didn't fail, the coating failed. I see some parts, uh, some people doing line X and stuff like that, or, you know, whatever, urea coatings and those work pretty well. Yeah. They don't, they just don't look quite as nice. I don't think. They don't look nice and they kind of fade over time mm-hmm. and they, you know, if you damage it, it's kind of tough. Like, you know, you don't want to be. It's also super hard to clean. Like the bottom of the earth roamer has it and it's, it's functional, but you really, cause it's porous. Yeah. So it just attracts stuff. Can't really get it out unless you sit there with the power washer. And even then, yeah, Yeah. it's still, it's porous on a microscopic level too. And it's heavy, not perfect. It adds kind of unnecessary weight in a way. It adds a lot of, you'd be surprised how much weight it adds. For sure. Yeah. And the concept of tooling, you know, my mind's been kind of going and it's, it is kind of interesting how many businesses in the, this industry are their metal shop businesses where something gets laser cutted, CNC bent, powder coated by somebody else, and they don't really have that much control over the entire process. There's really very few companies, I think, that are like tooling up. I mean, I can't think of another, like anybody else does stamped bumpers. I mean, that's got to be an insanely um, complex process. I think process. there's some offshore stuff coming in. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's an insane process to, to stamp like we do. Yeah. Um, I just remember seeing the machines at quality, quality metal. Yeah. Quality metal. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, I just love seeing how stuff is made and it's so drastically different than how most offered industry parts are made. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, some of the presses we use are five stories tall. Right? Yeah. It was huge. They're two was underground amazing. and three above. And is that, is that how you got interested in the use of boron steel? No, the boron came about when GM first contacted us about the bison. That was a weird deal, right? It's like GM. I'm like, this is the last people in the world that I would think are going to go into the Overland market at the time, right? Yeah, go sure. back. And then they kind of told me what they had coming. And I was like, wait a second, they're doing a Tacoma with lockers and a better engine, a diesel Everything engine, we've always asked for. All, yeah. yeah, everything everybody's always wanted. And here's GM of all people doing it. And I was like, yeah, we're in. For sure, we're in. And they're like, okay, great. You know, the next thing, like, you know, fast forward a few months, they're like, okay, we want, you know, skid plates and wheels and bumpers, like steel bumpers and winch mounts and fender flares and all this stuff. It's like, great, great, awesome. You know, and like in my head, I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to be really cool. And they're like, uh, and you have 76 pounds allotment to do it in. And I'm like, well, 
a gas tank skid is 76 pounds. That came, so it ended up, we ended up at 200 pounds. Well, everything's a negotiation, so. In a way, yeah. I mean, but they're still trying to hit their payload numbers sure. and all stuff. So they had to rerun a lot of tests. But one of my guys, uh, John Natosi, he knew of boron steel. He was a longtime Jeep guy or Chrysler guy. And he knew the boron steel because at the time they were using it. I think Volvo kind of initiated the use for their, you know, for safety parts. So Like an A-pillar kind of so a thing. A-pillars, mm-hmm. door pillars, rocker panels. And that's really the only place it had ever been used was in non-visible uh, structural applications. But John knew about it and he knew it was light and he's like, hey, what about this? Okay, this sounds great. But there was a huge learning curve on how to coat that stuff. We were the first company ever to do anything class A, you know, visible with that material. You know, stamping it, it's obviously, it's a hot stamp process. So it goes into like a big pizza oven, it gets red hot and it goes on to these liquid cooled dyes. You know, they're running cold water through these dyes and, and it's stamped and it's quenched, like hardened on the dye. But even just the way the coatings react to that material was completely different. So we had to Amazing. develop a coating process that would work for the OE application. It's, it's a hard material. So even the way you mount it has to be, everything has to be taken into account with that material. You know, normal steels, like call it 36 KSI, thousand pounds per square inch to actually permanently deform it. This stuff was like 215,000 oh, pounds per square inch to deform it. It's a good thing to make a skid plate out of. It's it's perfect. It's perfect. And yeah, it doesn't gouge like aluminum gouges. Mm-hmm. Aluminum is like a terrible thing to make a skid plate out of. Um, this stuff is the is the ultimate skid plate material, really. And to that point, we have one hanging in our office in Detroit that was the diff skid for Chad Hall's race truck. And if you think about it's a 3300 truck and that thing goes after all the trophy trucks with 40 inch tires and it's on 35s and it's just literally dragging that diff through every race of the entire season. And it's that, been dragged across Nevada. I I mean, that thing has literally been dragged across Nevada and you look at it and there's not a dent and not a scratch in it. I mean, the coating is completely worn off. Sure. In fact, I think we clear coated it and we hung it on the wall. Just to be kind of for posterity. Sure. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. I think you guys had that at SEMA and you kind of compared it to a, <laughs> to a steel have. one, Matt. Felderman was kind of pick this one up. Now pick this one up. Yeah. And it yep. was crazy how much yeah, lighter I think it was. One was six pounds. One's like 26 pounds. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it does, it, you know, weight is a huge deal, especially on the smaller rigs like the Jeeps and the, you know, ZR2, things like that. And, you know, I mean that bison race truck at Chad's halls, I think it, you know, I, I know it completed every single race of the season with that one truck, which is, you know, it's basically a stock truck. I mean, it's basically what you can go buy. So that material is impressive and those skids are impressive. And if, if anybody hasn't gotten under a ZR2 Bison, it, it's pretty cool to see a factory vehicle. And to GM's credit, I mean, they, they were awesome to work with. And they, I don't think, I think the engineering, well, I mean, I know the engineering team knew what they were getting into and how good that thing was, but I don't think the executives necessarily knew, you know, what an amazing truck they had on their hands for. There was nothing like it in the midsize segment. There was just nothing that had front and rear lockers, diesel engine, nothing. And people still buy Tacomas. I mean, there's a reason to buy a Tacoma too, but the fact that you can go and have a a warranty, you don't have to do anything to the car. You buy it and you drive it around the world. There's nothing to be done. I mean, to me, the, the thing about that was like to get a Toyota owner out of a Toyota is it's tough. impossible. It's right? tough. And there were, we were seeing a lot of longtime Toyota guys coming over to a Chevy of all things. Yeah. Like you would like, if you had told me that at Overland Expo three years ago or <laughs> yeah. four years ago, you know, I would say, yeah. I mean, nobody would. Take I remember that when down. it was hard enough to get people into Jeeps. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. When we started the magazine, there was the vast majority of the over 70% were Toyota. And then the next biggest percentage was Land Rover. And then it trickled down very quickly after that. Sure. And now, double digits for Jeeps and like the Gladiator really changed a lot of that. Yeah. And I mean, I'd like to think, you know, AED is a big reason for that. No question. 
Same with the Ram too. I don't think anybody would have thought of using the Ram before we came out with those parts for it. Which is a perfect segue to the question that I, <laughs> that I sent you. The Ram has certainly become the darling of the overland space. It has been fairly amazing to watch how quickly that transformation has happened. You see the guy who had the Forerunner or the Tacoma totally overloaded, and now he's driving a Ram with AEV stuff on it. And there's a bunch of folks that have made that transition. And the reason for it is payload. There's other great attributes to the Ram, which we're going to talk about, but the primary driver for these people where they must make the change is that the car can't take the weight of all the accessories. Years ago, I mean, this was probably... Well, this was when you first built your regular cab. I think you had 41s on it or something like regular cab oh, Ram, yeah. white, the white one. And you were standing there saying, Scott, I just don't know that I would ever build a Jeep again when I can build this. <laughs> you said there's only a couple scenarios where it wouldn't work. And you were taking it on all the trails that you used to drive Jeeps on in Moab mm-hmm. and it was doing it. For the sake of the listener, let's paint the picture of why a full-size truck should be considered for most scenarios for long distance travel. I mean, maybe even the Ram in particular, but let's, let's talk a little bit about that shift and why that's so relevant. And I will say that Jeep's still our biggest portion of our business, but Ram has really settled in there nicely as a nice little business. And and I'll say right off the bat, I mean, Ram, I think the Ram is fantastic. Everything about it, I love. I'm sure the Ford's good too. I don't, I've just haven't really driven them much or the Chevy. You know, I I know I like the engine and transmission in the Chevy a lot. Yeah. Um, And I just, I just drove the 2500 HD a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was the best of all. All of them. Yeah. And I've heard the Ford Trans is really good too. Going back to the Ram, which is what I know. Yeah. It kind of seemed like we were, we were doing with the Wrangler and everybody was overloading them like crazy. I mean, it's not that uncommon to see a 65 or 7,000 pound Wrangler, yep. you know, and at the time with a 3.8, right? <laughs> just, yeah. just wasn't working. And I got into it because I wanted to build, I mean, something similar to, you know, you know, that the Outpost 2, the camper Jeep mm-hmm. that I built. At the time, I wanted to build something like that, but I couldn't figure out how to do it and keep the weight right. So then I was like, well, just kind of dawned on me one day. I was like, wait a second, I've been using a Ram dually to tow a 57 foot wedge trailer with three or four Jeeps on it, you know, 32,000 pounds, no problem. <laughs> and I was towing it, you know, I put hundreds of thousand miles on that thing, sure. towing it all over the country and towing all the Jeeps all over the country. And it just kind of occurred to me one day, I was like, wait a second, why don't I just build a camper on a Ram? It's not like I was first. I mean, obviously earth roamer and sure. turtle and all that, but I was like, I'll just do that. I'll just put it on a Ram and I'll tow a Wrangler and won't even know one Wrangler's behind it. Yeah. It's like, who cares? And this was just a personal little side project. But then I kind of got into it and I love the Ram. I love the Cummins and I love the manual trans. I thought the Cummins with the manual, I just absolutely loved it. It's still one of my favorite powertrains ever. Yeah. So sad that that's finally gone. I know. So sad. I don't want to talk about it. They were the last holdout. <laughs> they were. And I give, and I give FCA a lot of, or Stellantis now, Matt and I say Stellantis. Stellantis. <laughs> that's, that's impressive that they kept a manual transmission for as long as they did. Yeah. You know, they just couldn't add more power, right? And sure. you have to be in the horsepower game. The manual that they had access to just wasn't going to work. Anyway, at the time I love the Cummins with the manual. I just thought it was phenomenal. So I bought a truck. I bought an 06 with a Cummins and a manual single cab. And I was just going to build that into a camper to a Wrangler. And it was just my own personal thing. And I built it and it, it came out great, you know, and I got some flares from Iceland and I put some 42s on it and I had, it, I built my own suspension. Cause I kind of realized I was like, you know, I started, I was just like, I'll just buy a suspension. Somebody's got to have something decent. And I couldn't find anything out there that was for real. Yeah. All of it was gimmicky, typical aftermarket stuff. It just, you know, it wasn't function. It was, I mean, it would get the lift. lift. 
Well, and at the time, right, there was a lot of, you know, if you wanted to put 37s on a Ram, it was like a six inch lift. And that just was not going to work with that suspension. I ended up developing my own suspension and pushed the axle forward and did a bunch of tricks and was able to do it with three and a half inches of lift at the time. And that thing came out so good and it drove so appropriately. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just couldn't believe like it didn't really, it didn't drive poorly at all. In fact, it just drove like normal um, the way we did the suspension. So then I kind of got my team together. I said, can we commercialize this? I mean, this is really good. You guys are going to be really impressed. Again, to my partner's credit, you know, all of our engineers, you know, everybody didn't even ask questions. Like, sure. So we developed that suspension from a fully weld on thing where, you know, I had to cut all the brackets off and redo everything to a bolt on, essentially a bolt on kit for what we have today. And then, yeah, we built that white truck as a show car to show it. And at the same time, it was kind of With that um, flatbed. Yeah. That was sh- such a showstop. That, that's what Mario has. Yeah, now. Mario yeah. has it now. But that, it was, was, it was, that was such a showstop. It was fantastic timing too, because at the exact same time, Ram went to the coil in the rear. So 2014, they went to the coils in the rear. If you took the body off the Ram and put it next to a Wrangler chassis, I mean, they're basically the exact same thing, right? It looks the exact same, just bigger axles, bigger engine. You know, everybody wants a diesel. So here you got even the small engine, right? Is the Hemi, you know, and people are paying a lot of money to put a Hemi in a Wrangler, but here you go, you just buy it, right? And like a power wagon is a great example that Great. it is it is a yeah. rubicon with a hemi yeah yeah and in 12 yeah. they went to these big u-joints on the front axle they kind of got rid of all the suspension steering issues that they you know ram was known to have back in the day you know this coil rear they do a really good job with the brake lock traction control and in, in four low i mean almost to the point you don't need lockers yeah it just started to make a lot of sense the fuel tank the mileage everything about it was it just kind of dawned on me i mean i kind of got smacked in the face with my own yeah. success because i was like wait a second this is perfect. And I love the Jeep and I love the Wrangler, but then for what I do personally, I'm like, wait a second, this, you know, I don't want to tell anybody, but this Ram kind of does a better job for what I'm doing, you know, and I'm always, yeah, you tow your boat around and I, everything else. You know, if I, I mean, I literally have a trailer hooked to a Ram all the time, whether it's a camper trailer or a skid steer or an excavator or a boat or you yeah. know, whatever, snowmobile trailers. I mean, it, those things are working all the time. And I just realized that, you know, if you want to cruise across the American West at 80 or 85, getting good mileage on big tires and towing stuff, just not worrying about being it. comfortable too. And I think that's the biggest Super thing with the full sizes. It's a shocker. I, I had like two epiphanies with the full size truck. One, I was under my buddy Colin's truck was on a lift and I'm looking underneath and I'm like, oh wow, this really is like a little bit bigger Jeep. It's, it's everything you would want to put under a Jeep kind of done. And then the second one I had was I parked my Gladiator next to a 2500 not and I walked different. away and I'm like, oh man, it's only six inches bigger. And, I, and I've had yeah. full size trucks and that kind of stuff, but I, I almost like never really took them super seriously. And then the parts started coming out for them and everything, you know, everything just kind of clicked. That was the key. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the key. We, we'd started developing those parts for it. And I think that's when people really started to pay attention. It just changed the truck. It looked like an adventure mobile, not a, not a ranch truck. Well, not just how it looks. I mean, the function was there. And and that was, that's the amazing thing is these trucks are engineered to take your pick, whatever, let's say 30,000 pounds or they're engineered to tow, right? So the cooling system size for that, there's these, you know, the commercial applications, the brakes are sized for that. I mean, there's so much overhead for what we do with trucks for the most part. If you're just towing a 10 or 12 or 15,000 pound trailer, which like 10,000 pounds to me, I don't even consider that really towing. The truck's not going to notice that you've driven these trucks. It doesn't even care. So if you're only towing 10,000 pounds, you've got so much overhead built in for sure. That cooling system, those brakes, the drive shafts, the U-joints. And that's something the Wrangler didn't have. It didn't have really, didn't have enough overhead. Mm. And that's kind of the brilliant part of the full-size trucks is, that overhead, you're getting millions and millions and millions of dollars of engineering in that engineering and that overhead. Well, if you look at 2000 and 
2007, all three of us were driving Jeeps. Mm, yeah. And if you're looking at 2021, all three of us are driving full-size trucks. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, we always have our staff drive our products. And so at some point when we did the Ram, we took everybody's Wrangler away and we gave them Rams. Mm. It's so hard to get them back into Wranglers. Like when the JL came out, we want to put them all back in JLs, JTs. Nobody wants to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the JL is really nice. It's just it's a, such like, a great vehicle. It's the best Jeep ever made. I mean, they're yeah. just so good. They're yeah. so good. But once you're able to like, yeah, tow a boat or you're, I mean, I'm able to put a camper in the back that is got a heater and it's comfortable and yeah, yeah and it's I've, different. I've, I've got a diesel JT, which is, I think, fantastic. I think it's the best Jeep I've ever driven. Mm, I really um, like that one. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's modified with all of our stuff, but, and I just think it's fantastic and I love it and I love how nimble it is. And it is kind of nice to get out of the full size and get back into something more, a little more nimble. At least it feels more nimble. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really work for. Yeah. Which know, one do you want to drive across the country? Oh yeah. It's not even a question. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and just the fact that you can, you can make an investment in a full size truck that can have the capability that you need, but can also do all those other things. You can go to home Depot and load it up full of wood. You can pull a big trailer with it. You can put a camper in the back of it. It's just, you end up with a lot of things that we've never been able to do with the traditional SUVs. Like we all drove land cruisers or land rovers or whatever, or Jeeps. And you had a ground 10 and you just, you were really limited on what you could do. They were great for what they were. But now that we realize that there's this very reliable, extremely robust platform that has, like you said, all of this overhead of capability that just doesn't exist in those other vehicles. It's funny that white Ram that I built initially, the single cab manual diesel on 41s. Yeah. I still think that that was the most capable, best all around vehicle. I've well, it's like the ultimate owned. toy, like, yeah. a, like a single cab full size truck is it's either for work or it's a toy because it, there's no real, like, yeah, you're not going to take your reason. family, you're not going to take your family around with you, but no. it like takes you and your dog. I will say my dog. if there was ever a vehicle that I lusted after, it was that truck. And when you called me and you're like, Scott, I'm thinking about selling the truck. I'm like, Oh, like I've got two kidneys. Like you, you really only need one. Well, and I sold that truck to Mario with the, you know, understanding that if I wanted to borrow it, you know, that would be part of the case. So he said, okay. Yeah. And I, and I have looked regularly on car trader and stuff like that to see they're just, they're hard to find that combination. That's not been abused. So oh, like you yeah. can find regular cab manual transmission, diesel trucks. They're rare. You can find them, but they're almost always beat. They have something mounted to the back of them or like a yeah. backhoe or Prices something. through the roof. Yeah. Too. Literally they're just a rare, yeah, they're going a rare vehicle. Yeah. It's like the unicorn. It is now for sure. Amazing. One of the other things that I wanted to actually, Matt, do you got any questions that you want to throw oh, in? Hell yeah. Okay. Throw okay. it in. Throw it in. What's the favorite car you've built? Favorite car that I've built would be that white Ram. That white with one. The, yeah. The white three quarter ton Ram with the manual. I think the one that everybody likes the most right now is the outpost. Yeah, team. for sure. That thing is awesome. I mean, that, that is absolutely awesome. I put the Hemi in it. I wish it had a diesel. I mean, the, the only thing lacking on that thing is it doesn't really need that horsepower. What it needs is the range. If I built it again with today's, you know, in today's day, I would, I would definitely start with a diesel. Yeah. A diesel Wrangler and then build it out. For sure. That thing is super neat. And it, it just looks so good. It looks good. It functions yeah. for, for a prototype, for a one-off prototype. It worked really and well. And you built the whole camper yourself, like by hand kind of. Yeah. That was one where it was the last year for the JK. And so we wanted to do something kind of special. We had these high capacity springs that we were showing off. You know, for the guys that have 6,500 pound Wranglers, we thought, eh, you know, the first year of the, the JK, we had a pop top tent. 
I remember right? that. Right, kind of yeah. like a Vanagon type mm-hmm. hard top that popped up. And so that was called the Outpost 1. So that's where the Outpost 2 came from. And we just decided, oh, let's do that. And again, going back, you know, again, this is something I've been wanting to do. I just didn't know how to do it and keep it torsionally stiff enough and deal with, you know, mostly deal with the structural challenges of cutting the back of the Wrangler off and keeping this thing intact and keeping the weight reasonable. I thought about it for a few more years and I finally figured, okay, I think this is going to work. But I didn't really know. You know, you don't know. You can only do so much CAE analysis before, you know, it's like, mm, I think it's going to work. I think we're good. It turns out it did work and it was good. And it was. Oh yeah. We took it across the altar. I mean, yeah. I, I was in the car with you. That was amazing how well it worked. I've, I've taken it all over the place. And the thing has, there's been no failures. I mean, it's, you know, no wrenching, right? Yep. I mean, altar up in where I live, you know, I've had it out in the snow and minus 10. I've been camping super comfortable, you know, hot water and everything. It's great. And I think, you know, I think we did the whole camper for about 800 pounds. That's with the fridge, with the hot water heater, with mm. the water tank, dry, of course, but yeah, 800 pounds with the lifting roof. How and much everything. did you probably take? off of that because it is the floor pan of the nope, jk that's still gone. There? that's gone yeah all up that it weighs 6400 pounds so I'd, I'd have to do no, some it's math. not too bad so chris wood um he had an aev jk with a like a tent topper on it you know all the stuff right the fridges and everything and his was also 6400 that's and, just and, how much and, they end up being yeah, yeah and this one has a hemi and a dana 60 mm. uh, rear and a dynatrack 44 heavy dynatrack 44 up front and dynatrack 60 in the rear so actually I think his was a Hemi also, but it didn't have the axles. And I think the rear axle adds a few hundred pounds sure. uh, by itself. And so I thought we did pretty good on the weight of that thing. And it, and it is viable. It's like everybody wants to know, will we make that or could you make me one? And it, it's just one of those things. I'd love to do that. Absolutely love to do it. If things ever slowed down, that would be one of the things I would do. I definitely, I mean, it is cool to go to Moab and do whatever trail you want to do. I guess there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, you could do anything most people are doing in Jeeps and have the camper with you. I yeah. Mean, it's, you can sleep. It's really, we're like on the altar, you know, yeah. that night you guys were out and the oh, windstorm came. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> I had so much sand in my bag. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was covered in sand. <laughs> totally. You know, and my dog and I were in there. I felt guilty, but you know, we're in there. You kind of like look out the window. Like <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> yeah. It was cold and windy. And these guys all had three season tents yeah. and the wind and the sand came up underneath the tents and just filled the tents. Almost everybody ended up sleeping in their car pretty much that night. And, um, you know, here I am inside. I get in there. I wash my face with hot water and my dog's in there. We, you know, sit down. I think I was reading a book. <laughs> totally. And, um, you know, socks and yeah. uh, my feet are up on the couch and it was really. Chamomile tea, anyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and we did. We used it as the base we for did. everybody. You yeah, know, we, we did. We, we did all cook, the cooking out of there. Yeah. Out of that. And uh, for, you know, what, what, we have six guys. Yeah. That truck. I mean, it's amazing when you take a prototype like that and there's really no squawks. It just works. Yeah. Um, and especially that was something we, you know, it, we didn't have much time to do that one either. I hate when people talk about like, oh, we built this in, you know, four weeks or something because generally it shows. But that one, we didn't have, we had 10 weeks to build it. I sat on the computer for seven 100 hour weeks and did everything, all the analysis and the design basically would give Jerry cut sheets. You know, he would try and hold to a 30 second on the cut sheets because we were doing a lot of it by hand. I had a buddy of mine who has a huge router and he cut all the panels. Sure. And uh, you used a composite core panel. Yeah. Or? We used a um, fiberglass polypropylene fiberglass, three quarter inch panel, basically glued that to a steel bird cage. We did a bird sure. cage and like, it's a nice way to do it. 14 and 16 gauge. The That's reason nice I did that versus like a lot of guys are using the foam fiberglass panels. I wanted to be able to change it if I had to, because I didn't know. Sure. I just didn't know enough to know if this was going to work or not. And I also, because it's only like six feet by eight feet, roughly, I didn't really need the insulation. Although in hindsight, like if I built a new one, I would 
maybe change that a little bit. I, I, you do need more insulation, even though the heater's more than powerful to cook you out of it. What heater did you put in it? It's got an SPAR gasoline. Oh, cool. yeah. They were the only ones to make a gasoline one. But the problem is it can more than roast you out of it. But the problem is then it, it, it just cycles so much because there's very little insulation. Sure. I insulated the one wall. So, you know, the roof goes up with the solar panels. It goes up sideways and all the solar. So I figured, okay, you're always going to park facing west. And that way the thing would always, the solar is always going to be south. And I insulated that wall for heat. That makes sense. You know, so the roof and that wall are are insulated. The other ones I didn't really worry about because I was like, it's so small. I don't, I'm not worried about the cold, but in hindsight, I would probably change that a little bit. It was cool. So yeah, anyway, we spent seven 100 hour weeks on the computer and then three 100 hour weeks building that. And part of that was painting it too, which is kind of out of our control because we, you know, that in Montana, we had to, we used the shop next door to paint it for us, but those guys did a great job too. But, you know, and I think we showed up at SEMA. We didn't have the interior done um, when we showed that thing, but then we came back, we finished the interior and I mean, literally it's, it just, I fill it with water and food. It works go. so good. Yeah. And it, it really does work. I was surprised myself how. And it's open well it to the camper, right? Like there's a pass. Yeah. Yeah. It's a full pass through. Even that is something I'd probably change next yeah. time. You don't use it. Turns out you don't, we use, don't it. use the pass through as much as we think that we would. I, I've never used it. Cause then you have to like, you're just like kind of awkwardly like, okay, now I have to figure out how to make my leg go yeah. this leg. At the I'm most, you out. might toss some stuff into the passenger seat just for convenience. But in yeah. a Ram, maybe it'd be different, but in yeah. a Jeep, it's too small. Yeah. Like I don't even fit through the seats and I'm not a big guy, but it's yeah. like, I'd have to turn sideways to get through the seats. It's kind of nice because you have the heat and everything if you needed it. Yep. You do. But with the S bar. The best part for me with the pass through is my dog can lay on the couch oh, and yeah. I can look in the mirror and see her. And yeah, you know, that's the best part of having the pass through. But the worst part is like just rattling, you know, you hear everything in your fridge oh, moving around, sure. you hear your dishes moving around. Sure. But even if you have all the dishes, you know, super nice, like the earth roamer guys have everything just so perfect. Even then you still hear stuff rattling. Around. Yeah, then sure. your spices rattle yeah. or like, yeah. or something. like something, in, no su- something in my convection microwave oven <laughs> thing rattles. <laughs> and since everything is so quiet, it's just like this... Just- Right. Yeah, annoyance. So that was something I have, I've used that thing for a few years and I've made several pages of notes on what I would do different. Sure. So if we ever do come out with something for a consumer, it'll have a lot of thought and history put into that. Yeah. Right? So that's something I'm always looking at, whether it's Ram or whatever, I'm always trying to use real life situations to save somebody real life hassle. It's almost like you need a, a separate division that you guys could spool up to make trucks like that, where it wouldn't put a lot of load on your existing resources. You know, I mean, I don't know. In my opinion, I, I mean, and there's a lot of companies that do a really wonderful job, like GXV and Earthroamer and Earth Cruiser, yeah. Yeah, Earth Cruiser and trying to think of Mark's name up in uh, Red Deer. They do a great job. For me, I've never really seen how I could do it financially successful. Cause at the end of the day, you know, it's not, look, it's not about the money, but you still have to be viable. You've got I've 130 never, employees to support. Yeah, yeah, you got to turn some volume. And I don't know how to do a camper type vehicle like that where everybody kind of wants something a little different. Yeah. And that that becomes a problem. So unless you can knock it out of the park with like, you know, a 99%. Well, and the cost to do it to that AEV quality level would have to just be. It's going to take a lot of tooling, right? So, yeah. and you can't change it. The nice thing about, well, I mean, Earthrunner is probably the, the only one that has really tooled anything now. They mm-hmm. have that 
you know, all their composite bodies and they're really going. I think they're the only ones that make real money too. I don't know. You know, I guess the, the guys, yeah, they they for sure. Oh, for sure. But the problem with molding stuff and doing that is you have to be really sure that that's going to work for all of your clientele. Yeah. And that's the part I don't like because I do like to tool stuff and I like to tool it in like, if I can't make a thousand of something a year, then it's generally not worth tooling. You know, I don't think any of those guys are doing a thousand a year. No, they're doing a couple a month if they're really lucky. Yeah, I don't know, but that's kind of what it seems like looking around. But so for me, it seems like if I could ever step away, maybe I could do something like that for fun. Sure. And that, and for me, that would be a fun way to wind down my career. Sure. So it's something that's been in the back of my head for a while is, you know, doing that because you know that the customers that buy that kind of thing are generally really, really good, fun people to work for. Interesting folks. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they're interesting and they understand and they, they're experienced and they, they just tend to be like really like they become friends. Sure. They also, they're buying into your, your dream and your belief. And you know, there's always, there's something about that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Know? Outpost three on a Ram. I think that would like be that. the ultimate travel truck. <clears throat> like, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I don't know. And a special thanks to this week's sponsor, the medic. When you're heading out, you don't want anything to hold you back. Whether you're planning a week-long adventure or a quick overnight trip to your favorite outdoor spot, we've got you. The Medic's CFX3 powered cooler is designed with any size adventure in mind. The CFX3 allows you to bring more of your favorite food and drink along for the ride, no matter how far you plan to go. Available in multiple sizes, the CFX3 is built for the demands of outdoor use and comes with a handy app that gives you complete control at your fingertips. It's the state-of-the-art, designed-for-rugged-use cooler that you can rely on and enjoy for years to come. You've got your first two uh, sign-ups right now at this table. (laughs) Where where do we sign? Earth Cruiser is doing one that size now. Yeah, they They are. And it looks good. Terra Nova, exactly. My my only beef, and I get why they do it, because they do it so you can fit into the shipping container, but I just wouldn't want a pop-top. Oh, it yeah, depends I, on the environments that you go to. I mean, I chose to do hard side. You chose to do hard side because well, my dog chose to do hard side. <laughs> let's, let, let's be real. I it just like all my buddies. I mean, Matt, like Dave, Mike, all, they all drive these bigger expedition vehicles. And so there was no incentive for me to have a pop top roof. I just might as well have a hard side. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've had a four wheel camper. places to hang out when the weather's bad. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a four wheel camper. I thought it was awesome. I spent some time in Alaskans. I thought they were awesome. Yeah. Um, so I think it can be done. I mean, the, the outpost is a pop up. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Alaskan, in my opinion, is, is, is such a cool design. I love how it's just the same design is. from 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, but yeah. it's, 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 it's now heavy. become cool. Yeah. They're super. Heavy. Heavy. Yeah, um, heavy. But I love the fact that when it does pop up, you're relatively covered. I want to say it's only like the cab over portion. No, has. even that has dropped down yep. hard panels. Yep. Uh, there's a company that does do one with fabric pop up. Yep. Uh, they just changed names. Nimble. Yep. Nimble does yep. one. I follow yeah. them on Instagram. I mean, I really like the look of the GXV, like the Ram. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ram GXV. They use a lot of our parts. These are. Oh, the, uh, oh, what do they call it? The are they adventure trucks? trucks? Yeah. They look really good. I don't know, but I see them at Overland looks really Expo good. and I kind of like, yeah, that thing. They're, they're the ones that do like the cool thing with, I, th- I think with GXV is they really do a lot of custom stuff. They do. You know, Earth Roamer, Earth Cruiser. It's like, you know, Earth Roamer, you can have a different configuration of your dinette or something. Our I don't materials. Or yeah. materials and that kind of stuff. But like GXV, like they really go yeah. like yeah. deep. And then they do like the the heavy duty trucks, the mans. The, yeah. Oh, know, I'm sure that's you're a whole world. For it. You yeah. know, I mean, you, you can't do it and not 
pay for it. You just got to pay for it. Yeah. It's, it's the only way to make a business work. Yeah. And, and so, so to me, the problem with that is even if you pay for it, sometimes it's hard. Like how are you going to do that and make it put the development in where people aren't going to come up with an issue somewhere? Yeah. How do you maintain serviceability? How do you make, you know, how do you supply them with a wire harness 10 years down the road? Yeah. I mean, for me, that's where I kind of, I get ahead of myself in my thought process where it's almost like um, perilous by analysis. Right? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I can't figure out how to do one of these products on a mass production level. That's going to be really high quality. Yeah. You know? Cause the last thing I want is somebody wrenching on a truck in the middle of a trip. Yeah. And I can honestly say, you know, all these trips that we've done, how many times have we ever gotten out and gotten a wrench set out and gotten under one? No, yeah, minus 40 degrees up in North Canada, nothing. No. Every time those trucks started. That's right. Cause I'm a sissy like that. I don't, <laughs> don't want to get out. <laughs> uh, you know, so I make sure. Proper, proper do, do, you, do you remember us? We were in, I think we were in, um, in Uvic or something like that. And we were trying to put deaf in the one truck and it was so dang cold out there. <laughs> I just remember us. I mean, like nobody wanted to do it cause it was, it was minus 40 trying to put deaf in these trucks. I remember yeah. not being able to get the filler doors open. Yeah. That was tough. <laughs> yeah. 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 It so yeah, I couldn't literally couldn't get the filler door. open. That was one of the most epic moments was when you took that white truck out onto the Arctic ocean. So now we're, we make it up to Tuk 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 and Dave decides that it's going to be a good idea to like, just dr- start driving towards the North pole. <laughs> and he did like, yeah. uh, you were way out there. You were oh, way out awesome. there. It was, was awesome. Like, not, not going all the way to the Arctic ocean, not driving on and it. And then, and then, well, cause that's a big deal. Cause you can't normally do that. Yeah. You, you, you can't get past dead horse for people that aren't Dave. It was yeah. Cool. It was, it was cool. Yeah. That was really amazing. I mean, you were, driving on sea ice with yeah. all the flows and everything. That was really, that was very cool. That was a good question. What other questions you got? All right. So outside no, of four wheel no, drive, no, I got, okay, one. You I got, got one? one commander. I know it. I know that this is real obscure, <laughs> but it to looked, tell the, tell the guests who no, like, what the commander was. <laughs> yeah. The commander, the commander, was I wanted a seven one. seat Jeep SUV made from what? Like Oh four to Oh seven or no Oh six to like 10, I think. Yeah. Like really limited production. Listen, this wasn't like a, it probably wasn't Chrysler's finest hour on some of the things that they did. It always interested me that you actually did something with that car. And it's one of the ones that nobody really kind of talks about. It was on forties. Like it was, it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just, you know, that, that truck was basically a grand Cherokee. Yeah. Everything on it was a grand Cherokee, just new cap put on it. New hat per se. Yeah. I thought it would, I thought there was some, it looked good. It, it had, good. I like right the square. Shape. I like the square. Yeah. It had a Honestly. Hemi. It had a really good four wheel drive system. Grand Cherokee has a great four wheel drive system. Have you guys driven the Wagoneer yet? I have. Yeah. I haven't. I've sat in them and they're, it's really, it's, really nice. Inside. The interior is phenomenal. Yeah. It's next level. And so that's a, that's a Ram 1500. Yeah. Essentially, you know, the different rear frame, different rear system. Mention. I kind of, but I almost like the look of the commander. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not, I know that yeah. they're different periods of design, it's different a, periods of what you could do with design, but it felt, I don't know. I like, and it looked cool on forties. Occasionally cool. that, yeah. that AV commander comes up for me, like <laughs> whatever I'm Googling. I'm like, where did that car end where did up? It go? I sold it to Brad Kilby. Okay, sure. Kilby Enterprises, air compressors. And I don't know. I think he sold it pretty shortly after. I really don't know. Every once in a while, I'll get um, like random email from somebody who ended up with one of these cars. Sure. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. Like the very first long wheelbase Wrangler, I know exactly where it is. That car you need to get back. That'd be worth getting back. That guy, him and his son just did like a frame off restoration on it because they had been in Florida and had seen some salt. Sure. So I think they, they had, um, yeah, I think they just got done. Probably done. I'm sure they're done by now. We're going to be uh, at like Barrett Jackson in 20 years. (laughs) I'll 
first. You'll be sprightly. You'll have a cane. That's going to be the very first AV we'll truck uh, going across. Yeah, uh, we can we can hope. Scott used a cane to break my knee. <laughs> yeah, that, that Wagoneer kind of has me looking at it twice. Um, even I, I'm not like I'm not in love with the exterior styling, but I'm always kind of like I can I can work with that. Yeah. Well, the only thing that I don't care for is the wheel well aspect. I mean, if the wheel wells are too low, if you open those up AEV style, that would totally change the look of that truck because then you could fit a 33 in there and it's just a belt line is awkward. Well, don't forget, it probably has damn close to 33s on it stock. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's a, it's a that, big, it's a big it's truck. It's a big truck. Yeah, it is. I, it's much bigger than you'd expect and it doesn't drive big. No, it drives really nice. You know, if you think about it, it's a Ram 1500 underneath. So this, the, which is a great the chassis core structure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're driving a TRX, right? Yeah. And you know, then I start to think, oh man, if you took, you know, if you start mixing and matching parts, maybe, you know, could you get something pretty, you know, could you get a, a 200 series Land Cruiser? Oh yeah. American like the 200, 200 does with series the, uh, thing. you know, where the people on the 200 put the Tundra control arms yeah, on sure. it and it gives you that like kind of mm-hmm. OE larger stance. Yeah. So mm-hmm. are they going to put the diesel in that? I, I haven't heard that yet. I honestly don't know. Yeah. I don't the one I drove had the six, the six, four, the one I drove had the six, four drove yeah. great. I drove the five, the regular, it wouldn't be the grand Wagoneer. It would just be the Wagoneer. Yeah. I drove that one after the program back and that also drove great. I mean, it's just, it's well, a really nice money. vehicle on the inside. Very think nice. Think of the money oh. that people spend on G wagons. I mean, right now, if you were lucky enough to put an order in for a 2021 G wagon, cause there's no 22 G wagons. If they're selling between a hundred and 200 over sticker. There's so, they're <laughs> good. Silly. They're nice. Yeah. They're good trucks. They're well-built, whatever. But there's, this isn't just happening a couple of times. This is happening with like the entire production of the 2021 model year. Yeah. I mean, right now everything's, everything's crazy, yeah. but there's money out there for somebody that wants something different. And that's kind of why it intrigues me. Cause I know they're, you know, I mean, a 200 series Land Cruiser is a really nice yeah. truck. And, and I look at that thing and I'm like, ah, that thing has pretty good bones. The Wagoneer looks like it has pretty good bones. Although it's a little weird. I don't know if you guys have crawled under one, but the, the half shafts on the rear end come through the frame. So that's, I didn't know. Oh, it has an independent rear. It does have an independent rear. Air sprung. Rear, air sprung. There's a coil option, yeah. but you know, at the end of the day, it does have some pretty interesting bones. I think you could do some cool stuff with it, but I don't know. It just kind of intrigues me. Although, you know, right now, I mean, our, I don't think we're, we just don't have time. You're busy. You know, I want to, but I don't yeah. have time. I'm so busy right now. So, okay, I guess this will be my question. So outside of four-wheel drives, what's one of your favorite vehicles? You own some vehicles that aren't four-wheel drives. And, do, yeah. and yeah. What, what do you like and what, what do you like about it? I do. I have a number of vehicles, a number of really weird, eclectic vehicles for the most part. Don't you have a Ram charger, like the one that they made in Mexico? Yep. I went and I went down to Mexico and I, I had a friend, uh, a customer, um, one of our dealers. I had him, I told him I was looking for one. For those who don't know, Ram made a Ram charger, full-size sport utility based off the half-ton Ram for a few years in Mexico, about I think it was 99, 99 to maybe 2001. They made this full-size sport utility, two-door, like an old two-door full-size Bronco. Sure. Blazer. And anyway, I always thought it was kind of just such an oddball that I needed one, but they were all two-wheel drive. They were all automatic. They were all half-ton and they were all gas. So I went down, my customer found me a really, really nice one. I think it had like 35,000 miles on it. And most of those things, when you go down to Mexico, they're just beat. Yeah. And they are yeah, so beat. Tough conditions. So he found one that had been garage kept and it was really nice. And I went and bought it and I brought it back and I didn't try to import it or anything. I just, I um, drove it in and, you know, I was, it would just have to get scrapped. So what I did is I kept the body and then I bought a three quarter ton truck, single cab, manual, diesel, Ram. And I used all the body components 
and shorten the frame. And I actually used the rear of the Ram Charger frame on it, but I used the whole front engine and everything from the uh, Ram and, and then put the back of the Ram Charger on it. So basically I ended up with a three quarter ton Cummins manual eight passenger um, diesel Ram Charger. <laughs> so cool. And it is really cool. It's a two door, right? But it's like, I mean, if you see it, the whole lift gate, they heisted off the caravan. Right? That's right off I think, a minivan. That's um, great. Mark Allen told me, cause I think that was like his first project when he went to, when he got hired at Chrysler, his first project was like, you know, take this Ram and make it into this and use as many parts as you can find off the shelf. So, you know, basically they designed some new body sides and a roof and a rear bumper fascia. And that was, you know, it, sure. it has all caravan parts and stuff and mix and match. It's really cool. And um, yeah, so I have that truck. I put it all together and I've, hardly ever drive it because I, it, it's cool because it's like a oh one you know, it's period correct Cummins. Uh, it's a high output with the, uh, the disc brakes. You know, if you remember those trucks, like when you start them, I mean, it sounds like a garbage truck. Yeah. Like they are loud <laughs> and it's hysterical driving it's a 12 around, valve, right? It's a 24. 24. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's similar motor, but it's still really loud. Like a 12 valve. Mm-hmm. It's always amazing. I drive that thing around and I wouldn't really expect people to get a big reaction. I mean, it's only got 34s on it. BFG ATs. It's got a set of AEB wheels on it, but other than that, it's basically stock and I drive it around and I cannot get over how many times I see people taking photos of it, like in traffic or, you know, double taking, especially when it starts. Sure. It's just kind of a sleeper that I wouldn't expect people to, to notice, but a lot of people notice that truck. All right. So you've got, you've got this Ram charger. What else do you have in the fleet that like what's, what's kooky? Well, the, I mean, the Ram, the Ram charger is kooky. kooky. My daily driver is an electric Fiat 500, what most people wouldn't expect me to drive. And didn't you say you tinted the windows principally so that people <laughs> wouldn't see you in it? First, yeah. When I first got it, you know, I mean, people, I, I paid a 6,500 bucks for that car. I want an electric car. This was years ago. This is like, in, I guess I bought that in 17, but I kind I could see the writing on the wall. Bought it as an experiment. I was like 6,500 bucks. Great. Because they were at auction, right? From lease returns. Nobody knew to buy them if they were good or not. They were so cheap. I figured, you know what? Um, This is when I was trying to build my Ram camper. I was like 6,500 bucks. That's a 24 kilovolt battery pack for 6,500 bucks. You know, thinking ahead in my, I'm like, that's pretty cheap for my camper. I was like, if this thing doesn't work, perfect. (laughs) You got a whole battery pack. Yeah. I was like, this is, that's pretty cool. So I was like, worst case, I've just bought this giant battery for. With all the charging and all. Yeah. With everything. A liquid cooled battery with all the stuff. And I was like, okay, this is, that's why I bought it. But it ended up being a great car. That's what you Uh, said. It never leaves the valley, right? It just, just runs me a few miles, you know, to my office, but it's perfect for that. I've got a Viper, a fifth gen Viper which is absolutely fantastic. You know, it's a carbon fiber tube frame race car. Yeah. I mean, it's a full on race car and I don't have anything that scares me. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's like you get used to it and it's fun, but you still get out of that car and you know, you still, <laughs> still be shaking. You're right? a little rattled. I mean, it's, like, yeah. it's like riding something. It's like riding, you know, a really scary sport bike or something. It's like you get off it and you're like, I shouldn't have just done that. How many right? times did I almost die just now? Yeah. Even if everything's fine. Yeah, right? sure. That car is phenomenal. And that was kind of my first kind of gift to myself when I started making some money and Sure. You know, I, and I don't have kids, so I can do these things, right? I've got a McLaren 650. That one I bought, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the suspension on that car, it's a cross-linked hydraulic suspension. That car is fantastic. And I wanted to see, you know, going back, the 99 Wrangler was supposed to have something very similar, kinetic suspension. And I think the Land Cruiser it actually does, does it, you it know, does. Th- did get it, right? But the 99 Wrangler and Grand Cherokee were scheduled to get it even before the Land Cruiser. And I knew from experience how good that was. And I wanted to... I was kind of looking to see if I could do something with the Wrangler or the Ram with that kind of setup. So I ended up buying that car. All these things I try and take 
bits and pieces of and bring it back into the business. Sure. Yeah. So I would say on the McLaren, there's engineering wise, it's so impressive. At least at that time, their build quality and their engineering was so good that it's really, it's amazing to look at, you know, and have this carbon fiber chassis and try and look at how they did some of the pit body, you know, even the way they do their body panels, it, it kind of goes into what I want to do if I could ever do the camper. Sure. So, you know, I'm looking at all the, the way they're doing their structures and all that stuff and I ended up buying the car. I thought, I, I thought I'd just keep it for a little bit and I ended up falling in love with it. I still have it. So it's yeah. not the wisest move financially, but it's such a amazing car. And I think it's, I think both those cars are completely underrated and i've been saying that and now i look at the viper prices and oh man it's, it's, it's almost crazy. like doubled from what i paid people for. finally realize yeah it. now yeah. it's getting the point the where last like, year should GTSs I were down in the 70s, 70s 80s and now like, 180 yeah. yeah it's crazy but think about it v10 tube chassis carbon panels naturally aspirate 8.4 manual transmission manual they're transmission. never going to make a car like that there's never so again. much fun to drive i remember driving those at skip arbor when i was doing the racing thing and the amount that those things would rotate i was really really fast in them because i drove sprint cars and sprint cars are all about rotation mm-hmm. and you could get like 14 degrees of rotation or something out of a viper i mean you just like steered with the rear it had a bad rep because you you can't just jump in that car and drive it like you would if you were a journalist yeah you have to spend time with that car and you have to appreciate that car i mean the mclaren's like anybody could jump in that car and be fast you know it's so it, precise yeah, but it's those two cars are so different, so opposite ends of the yeah. spectrum. They're both the same power, the same speed, you know, same everything, except they're completely different. <laughs> you know, one you get out of shaking, the other one does it so easy that you don't even know. Again, like I said, I try and bring, you know, what both those cars, I try and bring bits that I learn or, you know, I'm really into motorcycles, all different kinds of motorcycles. Same thing, you know, with the adventure bike and we've talked about it. Yeah. I mean, I've learned to, you know, go light and don't bring everything. You know, I mean, you and I go together well because we don't bring very much stuff. You don't. That's kind of funny for an overlander because a lot of guys tend to bring everything. And I think if you spend some time on an adventure bike or camping, it's the best way to learn. It's the best way to learn how to camp is take a motorcycle. I recently bought a Aviat Husky, which is a fantastic platform for exploring. Sure. You know, it's only got 29s on it, but you know, a lot of guys are running 35s on these backcountry airplanes. It's kind of funny. Oh, they're so cool. And and it's interesting, the parallels. We're seeing more of that now where you see the overland traveler and he's also using a backcountry aircraft or they're using, they're also in a sailboat. Same person, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's the same person. I mean, I try and take a little bit of everything I do, whether it's snowmobiling or motorcycling or whatever, boats, I try and bring it back into my business. I try and learn something from all those things. Um, and aviation is a really good one. You know, the mindset is you don't really get a second chance. Yeah. So, you know, bringing that kind of durability and just general discipline into like into my shop, you know, for instance, you know, you don't want to, I mean, a mechanic, you know, building somebody's car, right. If they get a cell phone call from their wife, right. They shouldn't have a wrench in their hand at the same time. I mean, you know, oh, that's true. certain things like sure. implementing stuff, that kind of stuff, you know, just the discipline, all this stuff really helps. Right. I mean, I've always been an adventurous guy and I always like doing different, as much different stuff as I possibly can, because I bring it all back into the business one way or the other. And do you feel like, that maybe those moments on a motorcycle or those moments flying in a backcountry aircraft, do you find that that gives you a, like a creative impulse as well? Like being in something totally different, doing something totally different than your day-to-day job, do you feel like that, that gives you a creative reset as well? A reset? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it kind of helps in a couple of ways because one, I'm not thinking about work. For, for just a split second, like for that bit of time, it, 
it gets me out. I'm not worried about some engineering problem we're having, you know, some, how are we going to do this? You know, you know, we've already paid for this tooling and now we have this problem. Like what are we going to do? I don't worry as much about the stress when I'm doing that stuff. But like I said, it it benefits me in that way. It keeps me mentally straight. And it also keeps me, I just realize things, for instance, when you're camping with a backcountry airplane, right? How do you warm up your motor? You Mm. know, and I've been thinking about like, oh, okay, well we can do this, this, and this, there's this, there's this, this thing from here or this thing. I can, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. I can just kind of mix and match now. Interesting. Between boats and airplanes and cars and trucks. Like and the Russians where they take the propane takes and they just like, <laughs> they literally like run flame on the oil sump. Yeah. I think, I mean, somebody's got a backcountry heater for an airplane that I think it kind of uses a whisper light sure. stove and you can heat them up. There's just, I just see a lot of parallels, you know, a lot of fuel bladders guys sure. are using and, you know, it's kind of like the fuel bladders for airplanes would work really good for cars and they don't take up all kinds of room. Sure. Yeah. That's the big Um, advantage of a bladder, which is why we use them for motorcycles. So like, you know, we'll, we'll use the, we'll never use a solid extra fuel can for, for motorcycles. We always use a roll. Yeah. You just roll it up and then now you're space efficient again. Yeah. As soon as you burn that fuel, you put it in and you're done. Yep. And, um, but the stuff for the airplanes is even higher quality. Mm, Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, stuff that I hadn't seen before that I can bring back into the, that's where I first found the the, the fuel bladders, that's how they'll get planes really long distance and extend them as they have these like insane fittings on them. And right. Like- yep. Yep. The fitting quality, all this stuff just adds up. If you're paying attention, there's opportunities to be found in all these activities, you know, whether it's rock climbing or paramotoring, I mean, all that stuff, even that little tiny stuff, there's opportunities to bring it back into the Overland community or engineering. You know, you might see something that might strike a chord with mm. how, Oh, Hey, I can do the fog light mount this way, mm. you know, and it, you might be looking at something completely off the wall, but it's like, Oh, that's a clever way that this Cessna guy did this. Yeah, you know, I look sure. at old Cessnas and I'm just completely blown away at what people did with no computers and how they built it and optimized it. You know, no topology optimization like we use today. I mean, they did it all by hand. And here, you know, these planes are flying, they're 70 years old and they're, they're awesome. And they haven't really changed that much. No, they haven't. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, they they should change now. I mean, if you could take like McLaren engineering for the safety cage, the carbon fiber safety cage and put that into a lightweight backcountry plane today, I mean, it would be fantastic. The problem is there's not enough volume. Yeah. Right. So you can't, so the technologies exist. I mean, a carbon cub is kind of misnomer, right? It's not really a carbon. No, there's a lot of carbon on it, but it's yeah, like the superficial engine cowl and stuff. Yeah. You know, if you could do a carbon fiber safety cage in that, I mean, it would be fantastic. I don't know. I'm kind of always looking at how, like, how, how do you do this? How do you do this? What's the right way to do that? Yeah. And uh, I'm just always, it's just kind of how my brain works. I'm always looking for opportunities, you know, somebody else might not have seen. Kind of bringing it back to the travel subject, where have you been in the world where, again, you felt the most inspired, like the trip that you did that like kind of shook you to your core a little bit? I don't know if any place is there. You know, here's the thing. I live in Montana on the Idaho border there. For the most part, when I travel, I realize how amazing it is where I live. You love where you live. I love like... You know, I love the Valley and I, I just, I'm like, man, we are so lucky. Sometimes, sometimes you travel and you realize how you start to appreciate how much you have. Yeah. I love, you know, Central America, love that area, but I've never been to someplace where I'd like, oh, I want to live here. But have you, have you been to New Zealand though? I have not. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> don't go then. <laughs> but I mean, that looks like Montana. It's like Montana, <laughs> except there's a black sand beach. Yeah. 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 I mean, that does look super cool for sure. Um, and I do love jet boating. So yeah. <laughs> um, I could probably... I could probably 
make that work. Yeah. Huh? yeah I haven't been there. So that, <laughs> I'll leave that one on the table. But wow. like, for example, that Rafiki Safari Lodge in Costa Rica that, I mean, yeah. you went to and you, you told me about those guys and then yeah. I ended up going, yeah. I mean, that place was amazing. Buddies of mine. Yeah. Loki. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love to travel. Um, I think, you know, it's more like the places I haven't been. I know you've been to Russia. I really want to go to Russia. Mm. I mean, that's, and, and again, the, the cool thing for me, what I think about with Russia, like the, the one thing I want to get and take away from there is they developed all their stuff kind of in a vacuum, right? So a lot of times you look at anything mechanical and it's kind of the same anywhere in the world, mm. you know, motorcycle or whatever, it's kind of the same, but in Russia, it's not. And so I look at that as like, oh, there's this huge opportunity to go and see things and maybe take away yeah. stuff that isn't normal. There is like, like some crazy Soviet engineering, crazy like stuff. the jet powered trains. Everybody else would be like, no, <laughs> it's Russia, we do it. Well, or go into like the, the man truck facility or whatever. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. All of it. It's the latitude I like. Sure. I tend to, I tend to like yeah, know, yeah. that latitude. So that's ride something. that new KTM adventure bike across there. Yeah. That'd be perfect. It'd be perfect. I would love to do Russia. I think the next like photography trip we do with AEV, I want to do, I really want to do Bolivia. Yeah. We talked and, about that. And yeah. then through the Atacama, cause I, I haven't been there. High altitude desert. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for a Ram, I think that would be really cool. Totally. And, and now that the, you know, the Wranglers have some turbos I think that'd be really cool thing to do. So I think that's you know, as soon as the world quote unquote gets back to normal, I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of the next, we had that trip planned yep. right before everything hit. And so we canceled it. And, uh, Tunisia, I'd love to do, I'd love to go to Tunisia. Oh, I mean, that seems like a really, crazy, really easy, relatively yeah. easy trip to do. Tunisia is one that I, that's probably, those yeah, two are probably the, the next, sand dunes. next two on my list. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Go see Luai over in Saudi Arabia or something. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's been a heck of an invite and yeah. I'd love to go. I would like to start traveling. I, but you know, things you're busy. I, yeah. My business or my life has been so busy the last year, like since COVID hit, I basically have locked up in my condo and I've been designing nonstop. I'm on, you know, I get up, I work East coast hours in the morning. So I'm up at, you know, four 30. I'm normally on calls by five, at least a few days a week. I mean, it's funny. I don't know. Maybe it's just my age, but like my eyes, I think have switched uh, my nearsightedness since I haven't been getting out much. I mean, I, you know, I put like four hours on my boat last summer. Right. Yeah. I mean, I put 200 miles on my sled. I mean, I just, I just haven't been getting out like I used to. Um, I've just been so focused on work this last two years that it's been, hasn't been real good for me. Like yeah. hopefully I've, I've needed a break and it's starting to wind down. We had this opportunity to do a bunch of new vehicles. And so we've just been working really diligently on that. And I got to give my, my guys credit because I mean, they've all stuck in there and we've been asking like insane hours, you know, all of us have been working nights and weekends for the better part of two years now. Wow. You know, it's not uncommon for me to be on meetings at 11 o'clock at night with the same people I was on meetings, you know, their time 7 a.m., uh, my time 5 a.m. And, you know, they're still working and I'm still working. And so it's this whole COVID reset. I don't know. Like I didn't get a break. <laughs> yeah. It reset in the wrong direction. Maybe. <laughs> We've been yeah. working hard, but I think, yeah. you know, I think it'll all pay off. And we've been learning a lot. And Yeah. We can't wait to see what's coming out. So, you know, yeah, that's the other crazy thing. I mean, we're working on stuff so far out. 
that it's funny, the stuff that's going in the production now, I've already forgotten about. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't even know. I have to ask, like, I don't even remember what that looks like, <laughs> right? Because it was two years ago. Sure. And I'm like, it's like mind boggling to me. Yeah. I literally, we've, we've moved on to two or three generations past what's just coming out. And so I literally forget what it looks like. I have to go yeah. back and remind myself. I'm like, that looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, we'll get to see it. Yeah. And, it'll and, come out. Yeah. You will start to see some stuff coming out. And I don't know if you've seen like the new Wrangler bumper. I mean, that was kind of the first one where if you look at, you know, to me, if you look at a bumper, it's one thing to look at the, the front side, what we call the A surface. It's another thing when you look at the backside, the B surface. It's absolutely crazy. And yeah, because you just put one on your gladiator. Put one on. All the thought that goes into every little fold and bend. And yeah, I mean, you know, getting that thing to fold so it doesn't really bend the frame of the vehicle if, if you were to hit something hard and trying to get all that stuff worked out. It was, you know, and, and make it fully functional. You know, mm. we like on the Wrangler, it's the tough one because we had, we only have once every 10 years to make the design changes we really want to make. Mm. And so that one was interesting because we were able to really raise that bumper up and we were able to really give you a lot of access to the winch if you had to dig out a rope. Which is a problem. Most, most of these modern bumpers don't give access to the winch. Well, there's little things like the internal routing of the wiring for the lights. Like when you look at it, it just looks right. Like it's meant to have these these spotlights there and then you kind of like that's one that when i got mine when i got the ex parked in the garage i cracked a beer and i just like kind of looked at it and then you, you keep realizing these different styling elements to yeah. it. and then when it was getting installed and the guys at summit jeep were doing it i'd stop by and then you realize like like you were saying there's there is that surface that you see but then there's so much behind it yep that is just like like i never would have noticed the wiring channel for the lights. Well, well, now we have a camera, right? So we have to hide yeah. a coax cable too. And some of the newer stuff, I mean, we've got all these new sensors for all this autonomous stuff. Sure. Trying to design it. How do you design a steel bumper that has to be see-through for all these sensors? Sure. Right? So it ends up getting, the more technologically advanced these cars get, the more difficult it's getting to do really off-road worthy parts. And it's really becoming a challenge. I mean, my guys are challenged. Every single part we do is not the same. I mean, it's like completely different. The architecture, we can't really copy. Well, and that's an interesting opportunity for AEV though, because how many other companies will be able to respond to that call? Very few. I mean, it's, it's so really, it gives you guys really challenge. Yeah. It gives you guys a unique competitive advantage in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the writing's on the wall with yeah. the autonomy, the electrification, Electric. yeah. the electrification, I don't think will be too disturbing, but the autonomy is going to be a real disturbance to our industry. Interesting. We're working with that, but it just makes everything that much harder. Well, and also the OEMs folks focus on integrating so much aftermarket reflection in the new vehicles that are sold on the lot. So it, I think it takes a lot of opportunity away from the aftermarket when you can buy a Jeep with their recon with 34s and lift and yeah, winch. And, I, and Yeah, I think that's Jeep in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they really want it all for themselves. They do. And I, I, on one hand, I hate it. On the yeah. other hand, I think I'm responsible for yeah. a lot of what they're doing. Well, well if you look at yeah, a true. lot of the things that you've done. So you start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's start with. Let's start with the long wheelbase Wrangler. Long wheelbase Wrangler. Hmm. Mm. Uh, Brute double cab. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Highline fenders. Highline fenders. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Highline fenders. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Talk about even that. the hoods are, you know, even the hoods are like pretty similar theme, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So actually the whole reason why we brought you on this podcast is Matt, Matt wanted to put you on the spot <laughs> to get us, to get a set of Highline fenders. Well, I mean, you don't need them, right? The Jeeps come with them. No, he needs no, it for his TJ. Oh, he needs TJ. it for his TJ. Oh, so I was just down in uh, Chandler, Arizona, and I saw there's a unlimited TJ with Highline fenders. Where was it at? Where was it located? At the Chandler Airport. Okay. 
Okay, so right. it's <laughs> Do you remember the aisle? It, it literally <laughs> hasn't moved in six weeks. Yeah, huh? I've seen okay. it down there. Well, it, so if you see it moving in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I tried to find out who owned it, but I, I couldn't. What's your next question? Where are my Highland Fenders? <laughs> <laughs> Just to clear the air about that, I, that was something I never wanted to stop producing. We had hired a company to make the flares for us. It was an Australian company, and unbeknownst to us, they partnered with a company somewhere in South America. They shipped our tooling uh, down there. Then that partnership went sour. So all of a sudden, we couldn't get our flares, and we couldn't get our tooling. That company didn't pay this company. They didn't want to give our tooling back to us because, you know, so it was at the time of the end of the CJ production, yeah, yeah. and we couldn't what, afford they were on sale like you had like a bunch and you did like a final clearance on them i know that because those are the things i find on the aev forum and i'm like ah. yeah <laughs> i know hindsight but we couldn't afford to retool them at that point yeah. and the, you know the sales weren't there to to do it and again you got to be viable no but that's so, good for people to know because like it was it was such yeah. an impressive solution that i bet there's there's dozens I mean, of I mean, tj how, owners how listening cool is it that you know slipping for a vehicle that's now 20 plus years old and some of them these parts are becoming like super sought after because <laughs> they just were so well done they were yeah. like yeah yeah, and like an nth, finding an nth degree suspension or whatever, you know, yeah. shout out to Jim on that. I mean, just like people that really redefined the way that you build a Jeep. Well, people still haven't done better things. Like you go back to the first thing that we talked about, what should people look for? And that tooling thing that you said just keeps coming up Yeah, because there's no shortage of high clearance fenders for a Jeep, but they're like, you know, metal cardboard, welded, yeah. they're cardboard aided design. They're yeah. limited to kind of basic traditional fabrication techniques and you're just not getting a stamped proper fender. You're not getting yeah. something that looked like it came out of Jeep itself. Yeah, right? for sure. And that was, I think, where we really succeeded. You know, a lot of my guys have worked at Jeep or at Chrysler or... You it's know, another Ford benefit or, of, the, of the Detroit thing. Like you're talking about the boron steel. Like, could you do that anywhere else? No. Could you get that? You couldn't get the talent. If you wanted to hypothetically start a bumper company in, well, let's just say Montana. I mean, I guess now maybe you could get people to relocate, but... You're relocating everyone. Like the cost of that, you're not going to get that collective talent. Yeah, no, Detroit made a lot of sense. And, you know, and I love Detroit. I mean, I I don't. It's a cool city. It's a cool city. city. It is totally cool. It's got an awesome art, food, music, you know, car scene, obviously. Everybody's in the car industry. So I I love going there and I love hanging out with my friends there. Always a good time. And I, I don't know why Detroit has such a bad rap because it really has. There's so many positives that I've always had a good experience. I mean, when we hung out at Camillo Pardo's place at night and like, it was so good. That was so good. That's probably a wild night, but a different podcast. um, Detroit's just one of those places where it was the only place is the only location I could do what I wanted to do Yeah, at the quality level. Like one of the last questions I've got is someone coming in new to overland travel travel by vehicle, what are the first couple of things that you would recommend them to do? If they're going to modify their vehicle, hey, I just bought a a Gladiator. What would you tell them they should think about before they even start modifications? What should they do? What are the first couple of things that they should look at before they go off on their adventure? Look, the the vehicles are more than capable right off the showroom floor. There you go. Right. At the end of the day, until you gain some experience and really run into an issue, there's almost no reason to do anything. A lot of the stuff you're going to do is actually going to put you backwards in terms of engineering, reliability, durability. So I think it really just depends on what you need to do with that truck, you know, whether it's a Gladiator or ZR2, you know, Ram, whatever. I mean, the Ram's one of those things. It's kind of an interesting question because on the Ram, it's a little different. The Ram is so heavy yeah. and so under tire, you know, you hit this 37 inch tire threshold on the Ram 
and it completely changes that truck. It changes the ride, changes the handling, all for the better for what we're doing. And it changes the footprint enough where it gets over this threshold where it's, you know, a 37 inch tire on a Ram is probably the the perfect tire for everything, for doing everything. I mean, the 40 inch trucks, they all look great. Oh, totally. You know, yeah. And they do work really well. There's this whole learning curve with 40 inch tires. I mean, that's a lot of mass that you're moving. So, yeah, and you feel, you feel it going down the road more than the 37s. The oh. 37s track a little better. And a hundred percent. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they, th- here's the deal. If you, if your tires are like your forties, if you have them and they're balanced good and they're tracking good and they're relatively new, I mean, they'll drive every bit as good. Sure. I drive routinely. I mean, set the cruise basically as high as it'll go and go, you know, up in Montana, you know, even towing, right? I mean, my trailer tires can't keep up with what the truck can do. Sure. That's one thing I found out. You know, I'd say for somebody just getting into it, just keep, keep the vehicle stock and kind of learn and try not to get carried away in, you need this, you need that. You know, here's a guy who makes a living selling aftermarket bones. You don't need hardly any of it. I would say the first thing I would buy, honestly, is a satellite text, like a, the spot text mm-hmm. messenger. Yeah, I mean, that would be the first thing I would buy and keep it on you. Don't keep it in the vehicle. Yeah, on it, your person. Keep it on your person. I mean, that is the one thing I literally will not go out in the woods with, you know, whether it's on a snowmobile or jet boat or car or airplane or anything. I mean, I keep that thing in my pocket all the time. And I learned the pocket thing the hard way when a friend of mine lost a jet boat and lost his phone and all his stuff for a week in the bottom of the river before we got it out. You know, had that been a different situation, mm. I mean, that that could have been a real problem. So yeah, keep it on your person. And, and that's the only thing I would say you really need that and a pretty good education to, you know, figure out what you do and don't need, you know, just what you want to do with the truck. When the vehicle's not doing what you need it to do, then maybe consider changing something. Yeah. But it's incredible how... Yeah capable they are. We just got this, this little Ford Maverick. You know, it has no <laughs> low range. Cool. <laughs> it has no low range. It's like a mini truck. It's actually super charming. Yep. I mean, I'm not gonna, I haven't tested it fully to give an impression, but just the idea of it is very charming. But I took it out the other day on our test track, which is covered in snow right now. And this little thing was just, it was doing all of it. Like it was going through, I mean, I'm paying attention and I have some experience and all that, but it was incredible how capable it was. And it's just an all wheel drive. It's not no low range. Yep. And yeah. it has a truck bed that you could like actually lift things into. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, like I, I just want one to put my dirt bikes in because then I would actually ride my dirt bikes because currently I can't get them into my truck yeah. easily. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And it's got like great set, little set of tires, good traction control. Like, I mean, I would go drive it over the Mojave road tomorrow. No problem. And that's, that's kind of an interesting thing is that the technology has gotten to the point, especially with like brake lock traction control mm-hmm. that wasn't there five years ago. Even. Sure. No but question. It is there now. Yeah. These OEs, they do a pretty good job. All of them do a pretty good job of getting these things to work pretty good. You know, there's certain things I don't like, like the Rubicon Gladiator. I do not like the suspension at all. Like stock. I think yep. it's terrible. It's wishy-washy. It's all over the place. Super soft. Yeah. I hate it. And the Mopar kit is even worse. <laughs> and then you can fix it with an AV two and a half inch dual sport lift. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't get me in trouble here. <laughs> but, uh, but you know that, so there's some, there's some, like most are wins from the OE. There's a, some, some fails, but yeah. I'd say most are, most are wins for the, you know, totally. I, I think it's only going to get better. These yeah. small displacement turbocharged engines are actually phenomenal. S- totally surprising. Well, their torque band is just yeah. like, and, oh, it's and, so surprising. Yeah. And even, even more impressive is the transmissions. Yeah. Mm. To, yeah. That's where cars are getting faster. That's the difference between your McLaren 
and your Viper. Like the reason your McLaren will smoke it yep, is because like a manual transmission is only as fast as the, the fleshy bit inside. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Like the eight speeds that they're putting in. I mean, the new like eight the speed Jeeps, in a Wrangler, the ZF yeah. eight HP is such a great, it's the only thing I, I mean, I somehow talk about this transmission all the time, <laughs> but it's the only thing that Bentley and Rolls Royce agree on is that is the transmission to use. I recall it's in all the BMWs, all right the BMWs it's in um, the TRX. Yep. Um, yeah, the 95s and the TRX. That same transmission. 900 right? horsepower, yep. 1,000 pound-feet of torque that thing will handle yep. from the factory. That's the ZF rating. Right, and that's I might be mixing those figures up, but it's... That's where they were getting issues with the manuals. You know, they yeah. couldn't... And that's the thing with automatic, right? The OEs love it because they can detune when they need to. You know, they don't have to... Like the manual, you know, you got to rely on the person. Sure. The brain and the right foot. Yeah. On the automatics, you know, they, the OEs love it because they can they can back that stuff off if they think you're really going to do something stupid. Yeah, oh, like now, I, and now I they good, good fuel economy and they drive great. They usually like detune power and like first and second gear and a lot of the, like the, the big trucks, I think. Yeah. There's all kinds of strategies. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, again, going back to that thing about the, you know, I see a lot of people making big mistakes and, and normally it comes like one of them is cooling. That is like a huge pet peeve of mine. You know, they put a LED light bar in the hole in the bumper that's made to give the intercooler power. Right. Good point. And like when we're doing work with the OEs, I mean, it's literally like, okay, you know, there's 586 square millimeters of surface area in this hole. You guys cannot violate that by one millimeter. And then we have to hold these holes and these airflows. I mean, it's really, really specific. You see guys doing it, right? They put a big light bar in the front of their Ram and they just don't know that it's going to derate immediately. Where I see it, the TRX. Like you oh, have. yeah. I see people putting on these different bumpers and changing the airflow and everything. And, and just, you know, keep in mind that these engineers spent a lot of time and there are literally yeah. thousands of people, you know, like I have meetings, like Zoom meetings now with two, 300 people on the meeting. And we're talking about things like that. And there's so much that goes into the OE engineering that if you're going to modify your car, really you take a step back. There's a lot of considerations that you may not know right off the bat. And ultimately you end up with a poorer performing vehicle because 100%. you're not. Yeah. yeah. Even a lot of the companies in the aftermarket don't know. They just don't have the experience to know sure. how critical some of the stuff is because, you know, maybe where they live, they've gotten away with it. They didn't notice anything. But yeah, then you yep. go and send that product somewhere else. That's one of the tough things with AEVs. We're doing stuff, you know, typically left-hand drive, right-hand drive, gas, diesel, all over the world. So every different country. You should see, we have spreadsheets on spreadsheets of license plate specs for every single country. Sure. <laughs> They're all different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're all like a millimeter different. Getting back to that, it's just like there's... A lot of the stuff is engineered for really sure. important reasons. It's not just aesthetic. So you just be careful when you're modifying a car to think about those things. You guys have all heard it from the guy who makes some of the best <laughs> aftermarket components in the world is, is just be mindful of the things that we do change to our vehicles. And it's an understanding that every modification may come at a negative cost as well. Yeah. I mean, and typically if you're, if you're going to have a positive in some area, you're going to take away in another. It's just kind of how it is. Right. And, and I'll say that even about my stuff. I mean, you're adding weight, you're change an arrow, you know, you're going to have a deduction somewhere else, maybe fuel mileage or sure. wherever it is. It, it's going to happen. You need very little free lunch. Maybe the boron skid plates. Free those lunch. are pretty fantastic. <laughs> the problem with those is, you know, I'd love to do those for Wrangler or something or Ram, but it's so expensive. Sure. And the tooling is so expensive that unless you have really high volume, like we had on the Bison, you can't really afford to do that. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. I wanted to do one of those for a KTM. 
Oh, that'd be like insane. Even for a 450 dirt bike. That'd be insane. Know, I've tried these aluminum ones. Yeah. They just gouge. Sure. You know, get ripped off. I finally went back to a plastic one because I think, you know, maybe they, I mean, for the most part, they take the hit and they, they do okay. But I thought, oh man, if I could just, if I had the volume, if I had an in in the industry, I wanted to do a boron steel. It'd be insane. Skid for that because it, it weigh less, you know, maybe weigh the same as a plastic, but it'd be absolutely indestructible. And it feels good too. They, you know, the stiffness that would add to it chassis too when it's slippery on the yeah. rock too it's not like you know when you hit like or a branch or whatever logs yeah, rocks all right. that and you guys have ridden like a bigger 990 type bikes i mean with an aluminum skid i mean i don't know if you've been on the rocks but it just gouges and you yeah. can just feel it like you know scraping hitting the brakes yeah. yeah hitting the brakes big time that stuff is so hard it just sure it just slides right off Oh, that's amazing. Why can I Dr. have TJ Highline? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dave's got one hidden back in the back shelf. So I I'm... actually, I'll sell you a TJ. <laughs> I have a TJ with 34 miles on it. 2004 oh. with a Highline kit. Is that the one that I think I know? <laughs> And okay. I think it might be coming up for sale. <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. It, it has always been so enjoyable to spend time with you and the adventures that we've been on and, and the inspiration that you have been to me and so many other folks in this industry, your business, your team, the things that you guys have created. I think it's such a, a high watermark that many of us aspire to, and you should feel a lot of confidence around what you're doing. It means a lot. Thanks. Well, I couldn't, couldn't do it without the whole team that I have, you know, in my Montana and Detroit and you know, all those people, all these products, you know, you can tell that people put their heart into it. Yeah, and, for sure. You know, you know, even the guys at GM, it's amazing. Like, I mean, you, you might not think like a OE would, there would be people who would care like take it personally, you know, when they're, when they're working within yeah. a company with thousands and thousands and thousands of employees, that's not the case. And you know, I'll say the same thing about Jeep guys. Yeah, they you know, do it's, care. It's like, yeah, people, people take this stuff personally and they really argue and strive to do their best and to get that best product out there for the customer. So the, the customer really, really should have a lot of confidence buying a lot of these products. Well, thanks again, Dave. And we look forward to your next adventures. We look forward to hearing more about your flying adventures and yeah. everything else. So uh, we'll make sure to keep track on that. We need another cover image for Overland Journal. So maybe the Bolivia trip. Thank you again, Dave, for being on the podcast. Matt, anything else you got? Oh man. Highline kit. Thanks. Highline <laughs> kit. And thanks for just doing next level stuff. Like, totally. you know, particularly with the Ram, like I really just think because of AEV, it's, it's made this whole segment possible. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like so five years ago, there was, nobody was talking about full-size trucks. Well, even the power wagons weren't selling very well. No. And then now, you know, you can tell they're selling better because, you know, you just see them all over now, yeah. right? Like five years ago, you didn't even see those. Now, I mean, that's, that's a pretty neat little truck too. Super cool truck. It right just needs more payload. It really does. They need a power wagon HD or they need something that yeah. competes with the truck. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just the payload solution. So, well, yeah. we thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.